0: Crossway Church Sermon Audio Well, I did grow up in a Pentecostal church. It was a good church. It was a very good church. The gospel was taught at the church I grew up in. And it was applied. And Jesus was exalted. And the scriptures were held up as God's very words. I was blessed. But it's interesting to note how our context is affects our interpretation of words and phrases and experiences and life itself. So, for instance, if someone had said the following phrase to me, I would have interpreted it in a particular way. If someone had said to me during those years this phrase, the power of the Spirit, I would have interpreted that in a way that was consistent with the teaching in my context. So I would have interpreted that in my context, which was a Pentecostal church, I would have interpreted the power of the Spirit to mean something like a manifestation of the working of the Holy Spirit that is supernatural or that is spectacular in some way. And so I would have thought in terms of something like Tongues, which means that a person was praising God in a language that they had not naturally learned. Or I would have thought in terms of a healing, which had not come about because of the body's natural processes, which in themselves is miraculous, or medical intervention. Or I would have thought about maybe a miracle story, perhaps told by a missionary, and that miracle would have verified the proclamation of the gospel by that missionary which would have brought many to Christ. I would have thought something like that, something supernatural, something spectacular. Those kinds of workings of the Holy Spirit are glorious. And we praise God for them, and we earnestly desire, as Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, we earnestly desire that the Holy Spirit would continue to work in spectacular and non-spectacular ways, if we could even say it like that, because really all the workings of the Holy Spirit are Spectacular. But the power of the Spirit goes beyond even these glorious works. And if you will, it goes beyond these works in a way that's even more spectacular and supernatural than the things I just listed. Today's text raises to our attention the power of the Holy Spirit. And it, fo- and it brings focus onto His work. And it calls us to live in His power. Or maybe we can say it calls us to live in the knowledge of His power at work in us. Let me put it like this today. When we live in the power of the Spirit, we fulfill the law. When we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, we fulfill the law. So let me read the whole text to us this morning, here at the beginning, and then we'll break it down a little bit further. So Romans chapter 8 Verses 1 through 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. So let's consider our text today in two points. First of all, the law of the Spirit of life. The law of the Spirit of life, verses 2-4. through four. And so what I want to do right here is bring our attention right back to verses 2 to 4. Let me put that up on the screen and read it again for you. Are you ready? Let's focus on these verses. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now let's go back to our theme for a moment if I could have that up on the screen. When we live in the power of the Spirit, we fulfill the law. Now, I recognize that this proposition, it may not stir up much enthusiasm or passion in our hearts, and I think that's because we might fail to recognize one of of these great realities that we have in Christ Jesus, and really a great reality of life itself. Let me explain. When you look at this proposition up on the screen, or even the Scripture that we've read, you might think to yourself, why would I care so much about the fulfillment of the law? And you might even be wondering, which law are we talking about? And you'll see why I I raised that as a question. You might be thinking that already from the Scripture that we read. For most of us, fulfilling the law of the land really isn't that exciting, is it? It's really more just of a simple necessity like filing our taxes. Even when we get a rebate, as nice as it feels to get a rebate, it should just remind us that that's just a portion, typically, a portion of what we paid. I don't think many of us are filled with passion to pay our taxes and thus fulfill that portion of the law of the land. We just do it. You can think of that with the speed limit. Maybe the most mundane of all laws that we're constantly fulfilling is the speed limit. We don't tend to be filled with passion when we fulfill that law, right? In fact, some of us are filled with more passion to break that law than to fill that law. But there's much more to this than what this seems to suggest, the idea that we don't feel necessarily enthusiastic or excitement about fulfilling the law of the land. You see, law is not simply a mundane and plain thing. Law is one of the greatest, strongest pointers to something that's far bigger, far greater, far more substantive than the laws that they reflect here or that, that, it, that is reflected here in our laws, in the law of the land. And it's that reality of something far greater that should fill us with awe and joy, and excitement, and passion. You see, we have law in this world because God gave law, because God made law. The law is a reality because God is justice. God is just. You could say God is justice, and you could say God is the source of justice. Law is not only there in our lives for order, law is there for morality. Let me give you an example. We all have a very low opinion of drunk drivers. Why? What's the big deal if someone's swerving around a bit or taking too long to stop? They take a bit too long to stop in time. What's the big deal if they're impaired a little bit? Well, obviously someone can be seriously injured or killed Because of drunk driving. And in those cases, we don't just look at the technical information of swerving over double yellow lines and say, well, that's disorderly, you broke the law, that's the problem here. No, we feel the breach of morality in drunk driving. It's wrong, it's offensive, it's rebellious, it's sinful. Choose your term for a moral breach. But we recognize that this is a matter of right and wrong. And that is what the law, this law, is based upon. It was wrong. It was offensive for someone to drive in a vehicle in an impaired state. And the accident they brought about came because of a failure of right behavior, otherwise known as righteousness. We have law in this world because God is just. We have courts in this world because there is a great court that all other courts are a reflection of, or I should say, a shadow of. They only mimic the great court, and everyone will one day stand before the great bench and the great judge in the great court, which is God's court, and they will give an account of their performance in relation to the justice of God. There are metaphors in the Bible like the church is a body or the church is an army. But the law of God is not one of them, at least not primarily. No, the law is not a metaphor. The law is real because God's character is just. When we see that, that God is just, and that law comes down to us through His justice, certainly the Mosaic law, but even the the laws, any morality that is real on earth, and the laws that are connected with that come to us because of Him. When we begin to see that, we begin to see that fulfilling the law is a very substantive matter. And our ability to fulfill it? Well, if we could do that, that would be an amazing triumph, right? And we might even feel like, well, that seems like an impossibility to fulfill that law. And we begin to relate to law more as we ought to. Look more closely at verse 2 in the beginning of verse 3. I'll put it up on the screen here for you. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That's verse 2 in the beginning of verse 3. And you're going to see here three laws are listed. as a listing of the laws, the law of the spirit of life, the law of sin and death, and the law. What does all that mean? Well, the previous chapter, chapter 7 of Romans, gives us a hint of how to understand the first two listed here. In Romans chapter 7, verse 23, Paul uses comparable phrasing to describe the power or the authority of sin. And he talks about the power of sin in sort of the same way he talks about the law of sin and death. And it seems he's using that phrase here, the law of sin and death, in much the same way, meaning the law of sin and death means the power of sin or the authority of sin in a person's life, its ability to control, to direct. And we know what that means, right? Right? The things we know we shouldn't do are the things that we do. Why is that? Well, there's also the good that we should do and we don't do it. Sometimes we do it, but a lot of times we don't do it. Many times we don't do it. Maybe most of the time we don't do it. Why is that? Well, it's because of the law of sin and death or the power of sin in our lives. And if you haven't yet been set free by Christ Jesus, then you are ruled by the power of sin. You're ruled by the law of sin and death. You must do what sin tells you to do. That's what the Scripture teaches. And if the law of sin and death is akin to the power of sin and death, then the law of the Spirit of life means the power of the Holy Spirit or the authority of the Holy Spirit. And when you trust Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, indwells you and now exercises authority and power in your life. Douglas Moose says it like this. Listen to this. The Spirit exerts a liberating power through the work of Christ that takes us out of the realm of sin and the spiritual death to which sin inevitably leads. The Spirit exerts a liberating power in the life of the believer. Liberating us from the law of sin and death where sin has the power to basically enslave us and drive us to now where the Spirit directs us and guides us and drives us. So there's the law of sin and death, there's the law of the spirit of life, and then there's a third reference up on the screen. It simply says the law. Well, that refers to the Mosaic law, the law that God gave to ancient Israel. And you've heard that expression, knowledge is power, right? You've heard that expression. There's truth to that expression, but it's not as comprehensive as it may seem to promise to be. Have you ever known what you need to do to get better at doing whatever that thing is? Whether getting better means a healthy life, or in academics, or in athletics or really any skill. I remember getting drill sheets from, the, from my high school basketball coach and, and him telling us, if you will do these for a few minutes every day, you will improve, you will grow in these skills. And I had the knowledge, I had the knowledge there in front of me on a piece of paper of what I needed to do. And if I would just do that, I would improve. But I didn't have the will to do it. I did it sometimes. Sometimes but I didn't do it consistently enough. I had knowledge, but I had not the will to improve. That's like the law of God. Here it is. Here's the blueprint to honoring God, to right living. Here's the Torah. Here's what God gives as law to ancient Israel. Here's what it looks like to live right. Here's what it looks like to have the good, the right, the noble. Here it is. It's listed out for you. Here it is. It's written. Here's the manual. This is not the prescription of a well-meaning counselor. This isn't just a few points as to how to guide life. This isn't just the words of an experienced coach. This is the law of God given in the Old Covenant. It's the requirements of God for righteousness. For the fulfillment of justice on the earth by his people. God doesn't hide this. He doesn't make it hard to comprehend. Everything in the law, have you ever thought about this? Everything written in the law of Moses is doable. It's doable. Think about it. Things like not making other images. Okay, yeah, I cannot carve images to other gods. I could do that, right? How about not murdering? Yeah, I cannot kill people. Or stealing. Yeah, I, I, can, I can refrain from that. Or lying. I can tell the truth. Or things like worshiping God in the, in the prescribed manner, like, like going up to the tabernacle or the temple at the appointed time and offering the appointed sacrifice. Yeah, I can do those things, Why then did Israel fail so miserably over thousands of years to do those things or not do those things? It's all doable. It's all written down. It's all right there. And why do we fail so miserably to live righteously before the just God? As we know, Because Jesus revealed it to us. The law isn't simply about the letter of the law. It's about the spirit of the law. It's about its true meaning. It's about the heart of the law. And here's just one example that Jesus gives us in in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, to those of old you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You see there God's character? You see there the justice of God, the righteousness of God? You see what it means to love God truly from the heart? His righteous demand is not simply that we do not actually kill one another, but it's actually that we refrain from anger with one another, hatred from one another, The heart of the law is complete love, complete devotion to God. Anything less than that brings an infraction. This is just one example in regard to anger. And so we know we have all broken the law of God. And this is where the fulfillment of the law by the power of the Spirit becomes incredibly exciting. What does the Scripture say to us, those who are hopelessly bound by the law of sin and death? It says here, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You see, being given the manual of righteousness for the glory of God, a.k.a. the law, the manual of righteousness, it didn't actually give us the power to be righteous, to fulfill the law, to be pleasing to God, to be acceptable to God, to gain His favor through good works. It was powerless to do it. It could tell us what it looked like, what it should be, but it couldn't give us the will to accomplish it. And so you see, knowledge is good, but knowledge is not power. Power is power, and God has the power. God has done what the law could not do. What our knowledge of the law could not do, God did in His great power. Have you ever done something for a child because they couldn't do it themselves? And yet, in your participation, you were, you were helping them and helping them in, in helping them do it. Actually, they were thinking that they were doing it, or at least to some degree. When my daughters were small children, I'm sure many of you have this exact same memory, and we would go to a playground. Sometimes they wanted to swing on the monkey bars or play on the monkey bars. Now, I remember lifting them up so they could, they could grab the monkey bar. And depending on what age they were, I remember holding them there on the monkey bar because if I couldn't let them go, they would just fall. And then I remember simulating them swinging so that they could reach the next bar and the next bar. And essentially, it was my power putting them on the monkey bars, moving them across the monkey bars, keeping them on the monkey bars. And yet, they loved it as if They were doing it themselves. The child couldn't reach the bar. They couldn't hold himself on the bar. They couldn't reach the next bar. But by the power of the parent, they accomplish, they experience all of the above. This is not dissimilar to us, except that the deficiency for us is not about our physicality, but our morality. The law couldn't set us free from sin and death because it can't change our will. It doesn't have the power to do that. We couldn't reach the high bar of God's righteous requirements because we wanted to sin. We have that moral problem, that moral breakdown, that moral breach inside of us. We wanted to rebel, and so we did. The flesh weakened the ability of the law. But God engaged us through the power of the Spirit of life. He lifted us up to the monkey bars. The Scripture says, By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. Think about that. God does what the law cannot do. God lifts us up. God sends His own Son. He comes, Jesus comes not as actual sinful flesh. He comes as a man. He comes as an actual man, but not a sinful man. But He comes in the likeness of it. You look at Him, He looks like all the rest of us, but He's profoundly different. He's human to be sure, but He's more than that. He's sinless human. He does not bear the penalty of sin. He doesn't have the principle of indwelling sin. He's not broken morally like we are but He comes as we are. That alone is condemnation of sin. The fact that when God becomes man, He comes in sinless fashion. It immediately says to us, your sin is not natural. It's not normal. It's not right. It's an aberration. It's wrong. It needs to change. It needs to be dealt with. See, we all know this inside. And Jesus comes in the flesh, but not sinful flesh. He comes for sin. In other words, He's going to deal with sin. Look at this phrase. Look at this glorious phrase up there. He condemned sin in the flesh. Remember, remember verse 1? We talked about it last week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, amen, but there is condemnation for something. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, but it requires that something be condemned. Do you see that there? Sin in our bodies is condemned. Sin stands before God's great court and receives the death sentence. Our condemnation is canceled But our sin's condemnation is complete. And it's given the death sentence. Sin faces death. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that has accomplished this in us. In everyone who trusts Christ Jesus. This whole thing has happened in you. The Holy Spirit working it, applying it to us bringing it to bear upon our lives. The Holy Spirit has applied this reality to us. Our sin is condemned, but we are set free. When we live in the power of the Spirit, we fulfill the law. Let's look at the second part of our text. And this point is life in the Spirit versus death in the flesh. Life in the Spirit versus death in the flesh. As we get into the next four verses, you'll see that we're being called to identify a critical contrast. So let's put the text up on the screen, verses 5 to 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I'm sure you already see the contrast here. We can either live according to the Spirit, or we can live according to the flesh. And really, there is no in-between here. This is either or. There is a sense that the Scripture applies generally. This Scripture applies generally. What I mean by that is that anyone who does not have Christ Jesus is, in fact, living according to the flesh. It's a switch. It's on or off. Either you have Christ Jesus, and you're living according to the Spirit, or you're, you're working to live, you're growing to live according to the Spirit, or you do not have Christ Jesus. In that case, you cannot live according to the Spirit. You are living according to the flesh. And if that is the case, then you need Christ Jesus today. You need the Savior. You're living according to the law of death. The person who lives according to the flesh and does not have Christ cannot please God. They're facing death. So this applies generally to humanity, but it also applies to the Christian. That's why this text is written to us, to us Christians. Because we need it. We're not condemned. We're living according to the Spirit. We have life. But we need this teaching because we're still learning to live according to the Spirit. We're still growing to live according to the Spirit. And we still have the temptation to live according to the flesh. That's why this is written to Christians and it serves us to have this clear call, this clear warning. So, let's look more closely at the contrast that's happening here. First of all, you might notice that word flesh that's used a few times in just our portion here, verses 5 to 8, but also used in Romans and other places in the Scriptures. First of all, flesh has a range of meaning. Sometimes the word flesh is used to speak of sinful passions… Other times the word flesh is used to speak of humanity in general, like the idea that uh, His Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. In that case, it's all of God's people, but a large group of people. Here it means something like material, the material world. So to live according to the flesh is to live with a humanistic or a worldly mentality. In other words, it's like seeing life through a very narrow lens, that narrow lens being a materialistic lens. Do you remember as a child taking the cardboard roll after the paper towels are all used? You take that little roll, and you, you look through it, and you pretend that it's a telescope, probably pretending it's a pirate's looking glass, right? And that's sort of like living according to the flesh. It's this narrow view, and you can only see You close your one eye, you can only see what's coming through that little circle. And you interpret life through that, and you make your focus that, and you make the goals of your life only what you can see through that materialistic lens. That's what it means to live according to the flesh. It's that narrow view that interprets life through a material or a worldly or a fleshly view only. What we have to understand is that when we approach life like this, when you and I approach life in this way, when we forget all that God has done, when we're not passionate about about living in the Spirit or the power of the Holy Spirit and what He's done in us to fulfill the law in us, when we live according to to a material or a fleshly view only. What we have to understand is that we set ourselves up for the fruits of death. The fruits of death. So sorrows, selfish ambitions, blind ambitions, blindness to our ambitions, blindness to our own ways, deafness to the Words of God, dullness to the work of the Spirit, anxieties and fears, enslavements to spirituality, and, and probably physically unhealthy, or excuse me, enslavement to spiritually unhealthy patterns and probably physically unhealthy patterns. And we lead ourselves through this way to a lack of peace with God. When our condemnation's already been canceled, and the reality is in the great court, the sin in us has been condemned and separated from us and cast away, yet we live with those impulses and feelings and those those weights. It's the way of death. When you and I approach life with goals that are materialistic, that are fleshly, that are focused solely on this world, when, the, when those concerns take the priority, what we will eat, what we will wear, what we will do, where we will go next, what's going to happen after this, when, when that's all our focus, we, we give ourselves to the effects of death, the sorrows of death. Living by the Spirit, conversely, is to live with an eye and a mind or the will toward the things of the Spirit. And that's an interesting phrase, right? That the things of the Spirit, it means. What uh, It means what you probably think it means. The things of God. The life that God wants us to live. Living with a love for God first. Putting God's concerns above our concerns. Saying to God, not my will, but Your will be done. Living in that way, living righteously, we can describe it in these ways and many other ways. The things of the Spirit are these things. All that the Scriptures teach us, all that the Gospel has accomplished in us, all that our Lord Jesus calls us to. And notice that living according to the Spirit brings, instead of death, it brings life and it brings peace. That peace is referring to reconciliation with God. If one is reconciled with God, our maker, then everything else is reconciled as well. Everything else is reconciled as well. And then we have peace. You see, when we make our lives about God, we enjoy the fruits of what life is truly all about, why God gave it to us in the first place and why He redeemed us. Notice an important point here. Notice an important point. We're not given a list here in Romans. It's not because Paul is incapable of listing out uh, specific things that would be living in the flesh and specific things that would be living in the Spirit. There are other places in Scripture where he does do that to some degree. There are other places in Scripture where other writers do that. But even then, the Scriptures are never really about a list of those kinds of things. So notice that we're not given a list of what things are of the flesh versus what things are of the Spirit here. And isn't that interesting? We're not told, for instance, this recreation… You can enjoy it and delight in it and, and just go for it. But this recreation is too far. That's the recreation of the flesh. We're not told um, you can have this much money. That would be okay with the, and consistent with the life of the Spirit. But, you, but any more than that is the life of the flesh. We're not, we're not told that. And there's there's many things we can kind of bring into this. And I think sometimes we may want those lists so that we can know how close we can get to the edge. How far we can push it. How do I know when I've crossed over from, you know, the life of the Spirit and into the life of the flesh? I don't want to do that, so I'll just, I need a nice, neat list with a nice line there. And I think we need to recognize that by the inspiration of the Spirit, the list is not what would be most important. The affections are, the inclinations are, the heart is. This is what the Scriptures mean when it says that Gentiles who do not have the law do by the Spirit the works of the law. It doesn't mean that they don't eat pork. It means that they love God. And it shows in many of the decisions and choices of their lives. That they themselves know by interacting with the Holy Spirit as they go about life. Things that you and I would never even begin to see. But God is working in the heart and brings conviction of sin and affirmation of, of other activities. Because they move away from the life of the flesh so that they can live the life of the Spirit who has fulfilled the law in us. And they then selves begin to fulfill the law of God in its fullness, in its completeness. The Scriptures give us all we need to evaluate our own lives and to help us grow so that we live according to the Spirit. I do find Galatians 5 to be extremely helpful here. And I think if you can remember Galatians 5, if you can bring it into focus more and more, if you can meditate on it, if you can make it part of your life, you will grow to live according to the Spirit. And you're going to see lists here, but they're not meant to be this comprehensive technical list. And there's some specificity, but there's not complete specificity. And it can greatly help us to understand The life of the flesh versus the life of the Spirit. So take a look here at Galatians chapter 5. I believe I'm starting in verse 19 or 16 or 19, somewhere around there. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Notice that, notice that things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there's that phrase, and things like these, meaning to say to us, this is not a comprehensive list. It doesn't mean to say, this is not being written so that to say, this is all you need to do, do these things. No. These help us understand the character, the nature of God. Certainly we need to avoid these things in their various expressions. But the law goes deeper, doesn't it? The true law that is fulfilled by the Holy Spirit and fulfilled in us by the Spirit of God working, applying to us the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Not only... Should we notice that this list is bigger than what you see here? It's not not meant to just be given to us as a list. Okay, now I got the list. But rather to help us understand who God is and what He's done. Notice at the beginning where it says the works of the flesh are evident. It really isn't a mystery. It's not some big hidden thing. I just didn't know. I didn't know. No, the works of the flesh are are apparent. We, we know it. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And we shouldn't remain there when you or I are stuck or enslaved in the works of the flesh. We're living according to the law of sin and death. We know it. We're convicted. We can't stay there. If we do, it will bring the fruits of death into our life. Thank God for His grace, but let's turn and repent. These works are evident. And so are the fruits of the Spirit. So if I could have the next slide. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Notice that these are not tasks to be checked off. These are virtues that that God by His Spirit is growing inside of us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, with its passions and desires. Language sounds similar, although it puts a little more emphasis on our partnership with the Spirit of God, but sounds similar to the idea that God condemned sin in us. And now by the Spirit, we live by the Spirit of life. We live according to the law of the Spirit of life. Back to our text in Romans 8. And you see it there, And look at the end of the passage. Look at the end there of verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The Lord has given us this passage so that we can be aware of the temptation to live according to the flesh and to evaluate where we're at. Brothers and sisters, when we live in the power of the Spirit, we fulfill the law. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.